0: Hey, let's pray, you guys. We're going to get right into it here. A great chapter in Luke chapter three. Lord Jesus, we just come before you. And uh, again, Lord, we just want to uh, hear from your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to each one of our hearts and minds. Lord, we just thank you that uh, your spirit can take the word and, and bring application for every one of us. And so, Lord, we open our hearts to you. Pray that you'd give us eyes and ears to see and hear the wonderful things that are in your word, and that we would be led to you, Jesus. That's our desire, um, that you would come to the forefront. And so, Lord, bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Let's start it off. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother tetrarch of the region of Eretoria, and Trachatonus or something like that. And Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene. And during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. All right, so we crack into the story of John the Baptist and his ministry here. And it's interesting, Luke takes some time to help us get a bearing on where this is in history. So it's like, it's awesome. You could open any encyclopedia, if you still do that, or Google this, and and read about these characters in history. And it's really fascinating to think this, that it wasn't very long ago, John was giving us historical background on when Jesus was born, and Herod the Great was in power, Um, Augustus Caesar, Caesar Augustus was ruling Rome, but 30 years have gone by, and some things have changed. And one of the things Luke tells us is that during the time when Jesus was born, it was in the fullness of time, that it happened at the fullness of time. And we we talked about that through Luke chapter 2. So, you know, when Jesus was born, again, Caesar Augustus was in power. The Roman Empire was really at its peak. It was at its peak, Pax Romana, the whole thing. Herod the Great is ruling in Israel. There's a reason why he named, he had the name Herod the Great because... He was the greatest of the Herods, the great architect, a powerful ruler. The guy had, had 10 wives that he had personally had murdered. Isn't that crazy? They'd borne him 50 children, and he would kill his wives. He was so crazy. But when he died in 4 AD, the Romans split up the kingdom of Israel into four sections. They quartered it, and they set over each of those regions tetriarchs, and, uh, and then uh, When Augustus Caesar was off the throne of Rome, Tiberius Caesar uh, rose to power and the moral decline of the Roman Empire really began with his rule. So you got Augustus is gone, Herod the Great is gone and there's new leaders in place at this point in time, 30 years after uh, the time Jesus had been born. You got Herod Antipas who's ruling over Galilee. He was definitely the worst. We know this is the Herod we read about the most in the Gospels. It was his dad, Herod the Great, who killed all the babies in Bethlehem. But this guy was a, a, a wicked, evil dude. He's the guy who is going to see that John the Baptist is killed. His brother Philip reigned in the north in Caesarea Philippi. If you've been to Israel with us, you get Caesarea Philippi and those pictures in your mind up by the, uh, the headwaters of the Jordan River and the ben all that area, and he was he was a peaceful guy. Interesting, his mother was Cleopatra, his father was Herod the Great, and uh, he was a peaceful guy. In fact, Jesus would take his disciples up to the region of Philip, Caesarea Philippi, when it was time for like hey a retreat with the guys. Matthew chapter sixteen tells us about that. So Philip was was married to a woman named Herodias. And it's kind of sick, but Herodias was his half-sister. And uh, it's not kind of sick. It's gross, isn't it? i like, that came out of my mouth. I thought, no, that's sick. That is sick. Um, she, and here's more. She was eight years old when he got engaged to her. He was 20. He was 20. They didn't get married right away, but really twisted, twisted stuff. And his brother Herod had stolen her. That's what the Gospels tell us about, okay? So Herod was living in an adulterous relationship with his brother's sister, who was also his half-sister. It's all twisted and sick. And um, then you have these other two-quarter sections of Israel that, over time, uh, Samaria to the south and south of that um, Two others of Herod's sons were given those areas, and eventually they would just prove themselves incompetent, and so Pontius Pilate was set over those two regions. And Pontius Pilate, was uh, his history is interesting because he started out as a slave. He wasn't a free man in Rome, but he had earned his way or purchased his freedom. He'd gotten political. He'd got into the game, and he had got himself appointed as governor of Israel, and particularly over these two tetriarchs. And uh, there it is. That's what's happening in Israel. So to say that there was no king in Israel, I want us to see that. That's why I tell you this. There was no king in Israel. There were tetriarchs. It was a time, interesting in the history of Israel, where they did not have a clearly identified leader that God had appointed. Spiritually, Things were weird too. You had two high priests. That's what we just read. It's like, where have you ever read that in the Bible prior to this? And I'm gonna tell you, nowhere. Because there isn't such thing as two high priests in God's ordained order for Israel. There was one high priest. Annas had been that high priest. And the high priest was a lifetime appointment. It was like getting you know on the US Supreme Court, right? It's like, you're in there. You got it for good. It's a hereditary appointment until you're gone. And... What had happened was that the Romans wanted someone that they could push around. They wanted someone that they could control. So they disposed of Annas, the rightful high priest, and they tried four of his sons put him in place, put him in place, put him in place, put him in place. And then finally, they settled on Caiaphas, the nephew of Annas, and they made him high priest. So it's weird. There's two high priests the rightful guy and the Roman appointed high priest. And the two of them turned the temple, we know this, into a racketeering operation. They were like just filling their pockets with cash, you know, selling things, doing things. We know Jesus went in and, and turned the temple upside down. So you, you have this nation. What I want us to see this, this is the start of the ministry of John the Baptist. Politically, things are crazy. Spiritually, it's off track. Morally. Like, these are the leaders you got. They're married to their sisters and all sorts of weird stuff. This is not a unified kingdom. There is no king. There is no unified spiritual office. In reality, Israel has no king and priest. So that makes this a pretty awesome time for the Lord to send the Christ, don't you think? To send the Lord Jesus. So if Jesus was born in the fullness of time 30 years earlier... Then at the announcement of his gospel, I would also call the fullness of time the perfect timing when all of Israel and all of the world was ready for King Jesus to come. And I I love this because, you know, if it's any comfort to you, if you look out around this world and you go, what is happening? (laughs) What is happening politically? What is happening morally? What is happening spiritually? I got to tell you something. The Lord knows how to look after a mess. He knows how to look after a mess. Be comforted by that. And into the mess, God spoke to John. It was at this time God's word came to him. And John was told, you go tell the people, get ready. The king is coming. Look at verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John's message was preaching about sins. He preached about people's sins. He didn't, he didn't preach about their fears. He didn't preach about political corruption. Uh, he didn't preach about all of these different things that were happening in the nation. He didn't address their hopes. He hit sin. He went to the topic of the sins of the nation. He preached about their sins and he didn't mess around. He he got specific. He said, let's not talk about sin generally. Let's talk about the sins of your life. You've got to bring them before God and get right because there is a forgiveness of sins that is available. This was the message of John. It's good news that the Lord can blot out your sins, that your sins can be forgiven that your past that is hanging over you and weighing down on you, your past that has separated you from your God, it can be forgiven and the Lord can give you hope for the future. Man, when John showed up, the nation caught this. They got excited. And John told them, there's forgiveness, your sins have to be dealt with, and it happens through repentance. See, what repentance is, is to see your sin as it really is. Repentance isn't a feeling. Like we often get this sense that like repentance is like feeling sorry or something like that. But repentance is not that. Repentance is to see your sin as God sees it and to call it as it is, and then to change your mind about sin and to change your mind about the Lord. It's a it's a 180-degree turn, I would call it, to see sin as God sees it, and to say, I am turning from this sin to turn to the Lord. It's not a feeling. It's actually a decision of your mind. And then as John preached this message of repentance of sins and forgiveness, he called the people to baptism. He called them into the waters of the Jordan. He said this, There is an outward sign, an action that you can take before men and before God that demonstrates what is happening in your heart. It's an an outward sign of an inner reality where you come before the Lord and you declare before people, I want my sins washed away. I want these buried in the past. I want to be clean I want to be rid of them. I openly, before the public, want to demonstrate I want to follow God. And so John was preaching a baptism of repentance. We practice today in the church, we're going to talk about this on Wednesday night, but we practice a baptism into the death and resurrection of Jesus, an open public demonstration of an inner reality, an outward sign that gives a a demonstration of an inner reality of our trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to save us and to raise us from the dead. You know, I just have to say this, and I'm looking forward to more discussion on this. We're going to do a baptism really soon. And so if you're interested in getting baptized, you got to come out Wednesday night, okay? Come on out Wednesday night and I would tell you this, if, if you haven't been baptized, I have to tell you something, you are missing out on something in the Christian faith. You are. You're also missing out on the fact that Jesus commanded, he commanded that those who follow him be baptized. That they enter into the waters of baptism. There is part of the application of the good news, the gospel that is missing from your life if you have not been baptized in water and made a public demonstration of your faith, a public confession of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because baptism is that outward sign that demonstrates the call to forgiveness, that that, that demonstrates the call to die to yourself and to live for the Lord Jesus. And so we say this, baptism will not save you. Baptism is an Outward expression of an inward reality. And this is important because, look at I'll tell you something. The Bible does not teach this, that going to church is an outward sign of an inward reality. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible says that the outward sign of the inward reality that you follow the Lord Jesus Christ is that you will go into the waters of baptism and declare that. And all this was taking place at a very interesting spot—the Jordan River. I want us to think about this for a few minutes, because uh, you know John. Actually, we read this—he's living in the wilderness, which is interesting. He didn't go into the cities. He he didn't go to Jerusalem. He was in the wilderness preaching. I I know I know a story of a fellow who was a, a, a gifted preacher, and others told him they said, "What are you doing in that small lame town? You need to go to the cities where you can have." bigger influence. John didn't go to the cities. John stayed away from the cities. John was in the wilderness when he began preaching. And you got to wonder, who was he preaching to? The rocks? Like, who did he start preaching to? A few Bedouins? A few shepherds? Like people, a few travelers passing through as they're making their way to Jerusalem? I don't know. I think he started preaching to the rocks. I'm telling you, he just began to declare the gospel and people started coming. Isn't that amazing? This is a work of God's spirit amongst his people. The Jordan River is so significant in scripture. You know, up by up by the Galilee, the Jordan River is just a beautiful spot. Like it's just beautiful. But down where John was, close to the Dead Sea, I would tell you this, I would not describe that as a lovely area. I've been there a few times. It's like, this is the last place on earth, pretty much, I'd ever want to live down in that area. And so John started preaching there, and it's not like what I would describe, like this nice, clear, crystal river down by the Dead Sea. It's not like Chapman Creek, where you drive by and can see the rocks at the bottom. No, the Jordan is just a mucky mess down there it's a muddy river and the dead sea itself is like the lowest place on earth it's the lowest elevation on on our earth and that's where the Jordan River flows in that that low think about it it's the lowest river on earth flowing into the lowest body of water on earth it's not clean fact, I mean, the dead, dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because nothing lives there. The a fish, you know, goes down the creek and into the Dead Sea, bloop, he's belly up pretty fast, okay? <laughs> That's what happens. It's like sin. Sin is death. It's death. And God led the people to the lowest place. So we have to deal with the lowest, dirtiest thing in your life that is death and that separates you from your God because sin produces death. This was the same place Joshua had led the children of Israel across into the promised land. And it's like John was saying to anyone who would listen, we have to go back. We have to go back to where we started with the Lord and we've got to deal with our sins. And the crowds came to him and they came in the filth of their sin and they went into the waters of baptism and they repented because sin had muddied the water. Sin had brought death like the Dead Sea. And they said, God, I need you to forgive me. Father in heaven, I repent, I go into the waters and ask you to wash away my sin." And the crowds came in droves, you guys. This is like they came from every corner of the nation. They came from every small town and backwater place in every city. They came and John said, you have to get ready. The king is coming. Isaiah prophesied this would happen. Look at verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John was called the forerunner, the forerunner to the king, and I'll tell you, he wasn't fixing roads, right? He wasn't Filling potholes, physically speaking, getting highways ready for the Lord to come. He was dealing with hearts. He said, You got to get your heart ready for this king. The king is coming, and your heart has to be ready. And I would say that to you this morning like, How about you? The king is coming. You have to get your heart ready. You need to turn from your sin and repent before the Lord and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. John said this, there is wrath coming. And you have to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And the crowds came. I'll tell you what John didn't say to them, what I said this morning. he say, grab a cup of coffee. I hope you get really comfortable in your seat. You know. And believe me, I want you to be comfy, but if you have sin, it needs to be dealt with, I pray that you would be uncomfortable because it needs to be brought to the Lord. You should be uncomfortable. Look at verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. There's a welcome. <laughs> Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not Begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, John was dealing with hearts. He was fixing fixing hearts. And it's this great picture that we get in Scripture that he's like, Make straight the path. Level the highways. I got to do a little bit of road building for a while, you know. Early on when I was, was that here when I was here at the church? I don't know. Maybe I was youth pastoring still at Calvary Chapel. I forget now. But I'll tell you what. When we build roads, the chainsaws came first and then the heavy machinery. Like John was like a bulldozer. That's what I want to tell you. Like roads aren't built with picks and shovels anymore. No, out comes the dynamite. On Gambier Island, man, I was working with the driller. He near killed me with a machine over there. I, got a, I, I was thinking about that as I was preparing. I'm like, man, God, you saved my life that day. No, out comes the dynamite. And when you're building roads, trees get cut down, stumps get ripped out, they get burned, rocks get blasted. John said, you think being a descendant of Abraham is gonna save you? Think again. You think ritual and ceremony of coming to the waters of baptism is going to save you? Think again. God is looking for true righteousness, he said. The axe is at the root of the tree. And if you don't bear fruit in keeping with repentance, you will be cut down. Church, this message has not changed. This message of the gospel has not changed that if your life does not bear fruit in keeping with repentance, you will be cut down. Even now, God is judging. You know, I think this, I'm like, we're always so worried about judgment all the time in churches. Blah, 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 I'm so sick of it. We're so worried about being judged by people. We're so worried about being seen as a judge. I get sick of listening to Christians and the world say, don't judge. I'll tell you what, quit worrying about other people. There is a judge. There is a judge, and we should be worried about him. God is judging, and John said, he is an ax. He's looking at fruit, and he has the authority to say, throw that fruit into the fire. Cut down that tree. John didn't didn't say, you know, just believe these four things, and then... It's all good. He was preaching action, you know. He was saying, Your life has to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You want to be committed to Jesus, then live a life that demonstrates it. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And the Father in heaven, the Word of God tells us that He has committed all judgment into the hands of His Son Jesus. And Jesus will judge the living and the dead. And John said, when it comes to the kingdom of God, I mean, you can't fool around. It's not just about what you believe. It's about how you live. We lose this in our culture. This is a very biblical Hebrew concept. In biblical Hebrew thinking, there is no separation between hearing and doing. The Bible would say this, if you don't do, you never heard. No separation. If you hear something, then you do it. And John said, you have to hear this message. It's amazing because this guy's like, he never did a miracle, you know? It's not like Moses striking rock and bringing down bread from heaven. He didn't like call down fire like Elijah. Like none of these actions, from John just preached this message and God brought people and they responded. Look at verse 10. The crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, what? And we, what shall we do? And he said, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. It's like amazing. Tax collectors, I mean, they're the most hated people, like even today, right? (laughs) Like, oh, taxes, taxes, taxes every time we turn around. We hate taxes. I mean, we got nothing going on compared to these people. Because they were extorted by their tax collectors. It was all fraudulent. They were ripping them off. Men like Matthew and Zacchaeus in the Scripture, they were scoundrels stealing from their brothers and sisters. Not popular men. They work for Rome. Refuse them, don't pay what they demand, and they like send the soldiers to your house and you're gonna get locked up. John said, enough of that. Soldiers came. John didn't tell them, interestingly, hey, you need to quit the army, stop fighting. Never said that. He said, don't abuse your power. When you're dealing with people, don't use extortion. Don't threaten, don't use false accusations, don't steal their stuff. Like, come on, be an honorable, honorable man. You know, in that culture, a Roman soldier could do this. He could compel you. If you were traveling down a road and you ran into a Roman soldier, he could say to you, carry my kit. And he'd hand off his stuff to you and you would be obligated to walk with him. It was law. You had to walk with him one mile and carry his stuff. And then he would... Then you could hand it off back to him, and you would be free. That's why Jesus said, if you're compelled, go the extra mile. Walk two miles. The soldiers, John said, enough of that. Don't abuse people. Even this is Simon of Cyrene. Remember, he was compelled to carry the cross of Christ. He had to. It was law. So soldiers, don't be a bully. Don't extort, threaten, false accusations. Don't do that. And as John was preaching this and as the nation was responding, like uh, naturally, the expectation was growing around John. People were saying, who is this guy? Look at what's happening. Like We haven't seen stuff like this happening for hundreds of years in our nation where people are turning to the Lord like this. Now, verse 15. As the people were in expectation and were all questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I was thinking about the ministry of John. I think, you know, thousands... Thousands came. Probably John was involved in the baptism of more people than anyone maybe in history. And the crowds are like, who is this guy? Is this the Messiah? Is this the Christ? But John said this. He clearly, clearly communicated he was not the Christ. He said, I baptize you with water, but after me, one is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And the other Gospels tell us that he said, I'm not fit. I don't think we read that there. I'm not fit to untie the straps of his sandals. And it's a, an amazing picture. I mean, we know this as we think about ancient culture and history. We know like, hey, it wasn't a good job to get left dealing with somebody's feet in that culture. You know, in the dust and the dirt and the sandals and all that stuff. Like feet were a dirty thing. That's why when the Lord told Moses, take off your sandals and stand before me, this is holy ground, he's saying to him, expose the dirtiest part of your life to me and I'll deal with it. Nobody likes to deal with feet in that culture, like not at all. And John said this, when the Messiah comes, I'll tell you this about myself, I am not even fit to untie his sandals. You know, in that culture, Even among slaves, there was a hierarchy. It was a slave culture. There was hierarchy. Not everyone was reduced to the most menial of tasks. And among slaves, the second worst task, the second lowest task in the hierarchy was to have the job to be responsible to untie the sandals from someone's feet. This is John's modesty, his humility. I don't deserve... To have the role of even being the second highest slave. John was humble, but amazingly, the scripture gives us a picture of Jesus that's even more humble, because the lowest of the lowest slave job was to wash feet. That's what Jesus did. took a towel and water and he washed the feet of his disciples. So John preached this message. There is one that is coming and he is greater than me. And John clearly confessed, I am not the Christ. He said, my ministry has to do with baptism. It has to do with calling to you to repentance from sin and, and forgiveness. And I guess in this sense, I, I deal with your past. I am helping you deal with your past and get ready for the coming of the king. But when the king comes, he's going to deal with your future. I can only deal with your past. You can come to the waters of baptism and be forgiven, but one is coming and he is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. See, baptism of repentance, that, that deals with your past, right? Like your sins, you come and confess them before the Lord and repent of them and receive forgiveness of sins, but baptism of the Holy Spirit, it deals with the future. It's about what God's calling you to do. At Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was poured out and the disciples, the 120 in that upper room, were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in other tongues, they received empowerment to live. Not, not to deal with the past, but to live in the future. To live with hope for the kingdom of God. To be empowered to declare and announce the kingdom of God. John said, the Christ, when he comes, the Messiah, he's going to baptize you In the Holy Spirit, and I like this picture too, baptism of fire, which I would also say deals with the future. I was thinking about this a little more. It's like fire. Fire is a refining uh, tool in the hands of the right person. You know, you put gold into the fire and the gold is purified, it's liquefied, the dross comes out, the impurities are burnt up. But you know what fire doesn't do? Fire does not destroy gold, it only purifies it. And Jesus will baptize you in fire. He'll purify you to bring you forth as a work to his glory and his name. Get rid of all the dross and the chaff from your life. Verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them, all he locked up John in prison. So John's ministry actually only lasted—this is crazy—six months. And then he was murdered. That's a—that's a short stint, um, you know. And that's going to happen if you call people if you call sin sin and you tell people who are living in immorality, hey, that's sin. You got to get right. You're going to find that the message is probably not that popular, right? It's one of the things we fear about in churches. We say, "Wow, if we call sin sin." People aren't going to like that. That's right. That's what happens. They might even want to kill you like Herod wanted to do to John. And Herod was hearing what John was preaching. I kind of wonder, maybe he'd come down to the Jordan River. Maybe he'd gone to his father's winter palace at, at Masada or something like that. He was in the region. He liked listening to John. Intriguing to see what was happening and the response that was going on. He heard, oh man, everybody's talking about John. And then he heard, oh, do you hear what John says? He talks about you, Herod. And he preaches what you're doing with your, with your brother's wife, Herodias, that, that it's sin, it's immoral. You seduced your brother's wife and you've sinned against heaven and God. And John is like saying these things publicly. I think, wow, you know, whew, that's nice, don't you think? Getting out there. I mean, when you start accusing a ruler of a country of of sin, you might get in trouble. So Herod, he threw John in prison. John had lived in the wilderness, never been confined to a little cell, but he was thrown in that prison. And of course, you know what happens. Herod, at the behest of his wife Herodias, his brother's wife Herodias and her daughter, had John the Baptist murdered, cut off his head. So John's ministry was six months, very short-lived. But what he did was this, is he got hearts ready for the coming of Jesus. You know, I think about everyone whose heart was prepared. Like if you just imagine it for a moment, we forget some of these details sometimes and we just read our Bible all the time and get so familiar, we forget. All of the 12 disciples would have gone, heard John preach, responded to the call of baptism and met Jesus in the process. All the women that we read about in the New Testament, all of them would have gone from whatever little town they were from, from wherever they were from. They went, they heard John, their hearts were ready. The Pharisees, they went and listened. Some of them even undignified themselves and stripped down and went down into the waters of baptism. Taxmen like Matthew Zacchaeus probably went and listened. Soldiers went. Roman soldiers stripped out of their kit before crowds and publicly confessed their sin and were baptized in water. People from every small corner of Israel, every city, every small town, it was buzzing. You know where news also reached? Nazareth. Word got to Nazareth. People from Nazareth started making trips down there to the Jordan. And John preached, and he he said this, it begins with an examination of your heart, and you've got to respond. You know, think about this. It's kind of like, you know, you go to the doctor. You and I go to the doctor and say, hey, you know, like we get a physical examination, and the doctor says, you're all good, or you got to deal with this, whatever it is. But when you come to Christ, you have to have an examination as well. And it has to do with your heart. You have to look into your heart and come to the conclusion, man, there's something wrong here. If the judge comes with the ax, the tree is getting cut down. There's something wrong here. If he comes to inspect the fruit, it's going to be thrown into the fire. And the judge we should be concerned about again, church, is not what other people think or what they say. It's the Lord who judges hearts and he has put all authority into the hands of his son, Jesus. So the nation was responding. And then Luke takes us back before John was murdered, right at the end of his ministry. Look at verse 21. When all the people were baptized, when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. <laughs> so, six months of ministry for John. Jesus is 30 years old at this time. We're about to read this. That's when his ministry began and you think about it, he was working up to this, po- this point, he was working in Nazareth, working as a carpenter. People are leaving Nazareth and they're, they're making the journey down to the Jordan River, they're getting baptized, confessing their sin. Then they're making the hundred, almost hundred kilometer journey back to Nazareth, and they're like, "Jesus, man, you should see what's happening down at the Jordan. You should go down there. You should go see what's happening. Like the nation is repenting. Thousands are going into the waters of baptism, but for whatever reason, we don't get the sense that Jesus was there right at the start. He like he waited. He didn't rush down to the Jordan when the time was right, when the nation was ready." When the Lord directed him, off came that carpenter's apron and he hung it up on the wall in his shop. He put down the hammer and nails for the last time. Next time, the hammer and nails would, three years later, be used in his hands again. He walked the nearly 100 kilometers from Nazareth to the place where John baptized. It's amazing. Jesus went to the dirtiest place in the world. Jesus went to the most filthy freshwater river in the world. Jesus went down to the Dead Sea where everything died as it flowed into that sea, and no one made him do it. John said, We can't do this, Jesus. And Jesus said, John, all things have to be fulfilled. All four Gospels recount this. This is so important, the baptism of Jesus. And Jesus went there fully on his own, of his own volition. When the time was right, he went down there. And, and I think about that, and I think this, you know, baptism is this very thing. I was reading something about this. I thought it was so good. That baptism is a choice. Before God, you have to be Mature and responsible and recognize that the scripture says you must be baptized. Personal testimony. (laughs) This became clearer for me this week, even as I was studying, you know, I, I grew up in the church, never got baptized. For whatever reason, I just never did. You know, never went into the waters of baptism, never made a public profession of faith, loved Jesus Was following Jesus, had gone off to Bible college even to prepare for pastoral ministry, never been baptized. Then one day, I'm like reading my Bible and I'm like, Holy smokes, I'm in disobedience. The scripture commands that I do this and I've never done it. And it began to weigh on me. I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is crazy. So I was here, you know, I think it was like September. Around 2007, I got baptized at Christian Life Assembly. My brother and sister were baptized that same day. It was awesome. And after that, I just began to grow in the Lord. And I thought, what the heck? And then I realized, oh, I have been walking in disobedience before God in this area of my life. Not even recognizing it, but it was a hindrance to my relationship with the Lord Jesus. Look it, I wouldn't tell you. I'm not going to, you know, twist your arm to get baptized. I'm just saying. You need to search the scriptures for yourself. You need to come on Wednesday night. Hear what the word of God tells us about baptism. Hear what uh, the Spirit is saying this morning. Baptism doesn't save us. But it is an outward expression of an inward reality. And we know this about Jesus. If there's one person who never had to be baptized, it was Jesus. He didn't have sin. He didn't need to ask for forgiveness. There was nothing that he had to... repent of, but it's the word of God tells us that he said, this is proper, that all things would be fulfilled. And there's amazing things that we can learn, you know, like associates with John and his ministry. This is the launch point of Jesus' ministry. It's inspiration for you and I. It's like, well, if Jesus got baptized, why would I not be baptized? It was his identification with us going to that dirty river, that dirty area. And what happened for him A blessing came from heaven. Luke puts real emphasis on this all through his gospel. I've mentioned this already. Some of the weeks before, Luke places emphasis on the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. And and Luke says this, the heavens opened that day. It's like, I don't know. So in my mind, it's like, it must have been cloudy, overcast, you know. And the heavens, the clouds split like the Red Sea. And light shone from heaven, and the Spirit of God descended upon him in the form of a dove. A voice spoke from heaven. This is the the only time in Scripture that the Spirit of God takes a physical form, a dove, and lands on Jesus. A voice spoke from heaven, identifying Jesus and approving him. This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. We know this, the, the Spirit anointed and empowered Jesus for his ministry. At, at his baptism, he received assurance from his Father in heaven You are my Son. I approve of you. With you I am well pleased because you are following me in obedience. Now, think this about baptism. Baptism begins with recognizing God is not pleased with sin. And sin needs to be repented of and turned from. The sinful condition of our lives has to be dealt with. And then we come to Christ and repentance and faith. And we identify ourselves with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I'll tell you what, when a follower of Jesus does that, the Father in heaven is pleased. Identification with Jesus is to be a member of the family of God. Jesus said this, if you can't confess me before men... I won't confess you before my Father in heaven. Now, let's read through here. We'll, we'll wrap up pretty quick. The genealogy of Jesus Christ. You know, I'm, I'm sure you, if you were looking ahead, you were excited about this part. You're like, oh, I can't wait for the genealogy. Okay, <laughs> verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. We'll just draw a couple things from here, and we'll, we'll wrap it up and get ready for the worship team. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Being the son... As was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mahat, bear with me, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Negai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joshek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan. The son of Ressa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. Remember those guys? They're pretty important in the rebuilding of the temple and the walls of Jerusalem in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra. The son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kasam, the son of ElMadam. That's a weird one. The son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mahat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam the son of Eliakim, the son of Milah, the son of Mena, the son of Matatah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob. Yeah, that's right. You can cheer on. The son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor. The son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, son of Noah, son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. We're cheering for Jesus. It's amazing, you know. These genealogies. It's like, oh man, why are these in Scripture? Sometimes, you know. I know. I know the temptation. You're in your quiet time. I just arrived this week in my quiet time at First Chronicles, and I thought, oh, take a deep breath. You know, gonna get into these chapters and go through these genealogies. It's interesting. Jesus' genealogy is told twice in the Gospel accounts. Matthew has it recorded. But what's interesting is Luke's genealogy is different than Matthew's genealogy. If you take the two of them and put them side by side, I mean, they're different. Yeah, They're the same from, from David going back to Abraham, but after David, uh, Matthew only goes from David down to Jesus' birth. It's different. Well, here's the difference, okay? If you're wondering, this is actually Mary's genealogy. This is the genealogy of Mary. It says as was the son of Joseph, so it was supposed. So the scripture gives us both the legal and the spiritual lineage of Jesus, bringing us back and showing us that he is the son of David, that he is the rightful heir to the throne. So you have Mary's family line, and Mary's family line goes back to King David through his son Nathan. And Joseph's family line goes back to through uh, to David through Solomon, and there's a lot of details and a lot of interesting things on why the Scripture does this. And for the sake of time, we're not going to uh, look at that this morning. We can chat about it tonight at prayer. Come to prayer, we'll talk about that, okay? Uh, Because there's some cool stuff to do with that and why the Scripture does that. But the difference happens at Nathan. But then one of the other differences about Luke's genealogy that I want to point out to us this morning is this, is that it goes all the way back to Adam. And it says, the Son of God. Adam formed of the dust, God breathed into him. The Son of God. This is an interesting thing. It's like men and women made in the image of God. We are sons and daughters of God by God's design. And so, you know, you kind of wonder, and this is where I'm going to wrap. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a little long this morning. But I think this is really important. Why did Luke place the genealogy here? Why right here? Because Matthew started with it. So why is this genealogy here? Well, there's two important things, two identifications that were given about Jesus. Firstly, a voice from heaven said, Son of God. Secondly, a genealogy said, Son of God. One is to do with his deity. and One is to do with his humanity. It's beautiful. See, Jesus is the Son of God. Think about this. In your mind, I want to draw you a picture. Think about a vertical line going from Jesus to God. The vertical relationship. We talk about this in our commandment series. We've been talking a lot about the vertical relationship with God and the horizontal relationship with people. We say, I don't understand the deity of the Lord Jesus, how he's both God and human. Jesus, vertically connected to the Father. But Jesus was also Son of God in his humanity. He was horizontally connected to you and I. He was connected to Adam, connected to God's creation. And you say, well, how do those things meet? How does the Son of God humanity meet with the Son of God deity? And I'm going to give you the intersection. Baptism. Yeah. Baptism. Baptism is the intersection where Jesus, deity, and humanity met so that we could understand this. Now, I'm going to tell you something else. Jesus' first identity, deity. Your first identity, humanity. Where do you meet in your relationship with the Lord? Where does God's call upon your life to be a son of God in your Humanity and the call to which he is going to glorify you meet. Same point, church. Baptism. That's why Jesus said, it's got to happen. It has to happen in your life. It's got to be a public declaration of faith. You've got to go into the waters of baptism. You want to be counted before God, as someone who, who Jesus will repeat your name in heaven, then publicly it has to happen. Would you stand with me this morning? I invite the worship team to come. A little long, we're going to do communion. And uh, I'm going to give you this opportunity. uh, Right now, as we come to the Lord's table, we got to look into our own hearts. That's what the scripture says. Just like John declared, Paul declared. He said, you can't come to the table of the Lord in an unworthy manner. You bring, get this again, you bring judgment on yourself. So the word of God instructs us to do an inward heart check. To say, Jesus, whoa, there it is. That sin, that thing your spirit's pointing out to me, I got to deal with it right here and now. And we take time, we search our hearts, and if there's areas of sin, and confession that need to happen, we deal with it, and then we come to the table of the Lord and we identify ourselves with the death and resurrection of Jesus, with the body and blood of Jesus, because in him, we have life. And so this morning, here's my, just my simple instruction to you. If you know the Lord Jesus, your heart is right before him, you come to the table and partake with us this morning. If you're visiting here for the very first time, The second part of the instruction is this. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, then look it, you need to to refrain because you'll eat and drink judgment on yourself. But the third part is this. If you want to know Jesus and you want to have your heart right, then you spend some time before God and say, Jesus, can we deal with this sin? I confess it. I call it what it is. I repent of it. I turn from it. I, I invite you to be Lord of my life. Then you, you come, you identify yourself with the death and resurrection of Jesus by partaking in the table with us this morning. So these guys are gonna lead us in worship as your heart is ready. Come to the table, let's pray. Lord, Lord, we wanna be identified with you. Wanna be seen as those who have hearts after you, Lord. We want our lives to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Lord, we want to have healthy roots. And so, Lord, we, we invite you by your spirit this morning to dig around in our hearts, and our lives. Holy Spirit, we invite you. Search our hearts. Search our hearts, Lord. Let's, let us, before you, deal with our sin and have hearts right so that we can celebrate with you at the table. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.